Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Chloe Cooper-Jones is a philosophy professor and freelance journalist who was a finalist for a 2020 Pulitzer Prize in feature writing. Her work has appeared in publications including GQ, The Verge, and The Believer, and has been selected for both the Best American Travel Writing and the Best American Sports Writing. She lives in Brooklyn, and her debut memoir is called Easy Beauty. Chloe, I'm so excited for you. (laughs) Hi, Maris. I'm so excited to be here getting to talk to you. Chloe, you have written so many wonderful things about so many different kinds of things like art and philosophy and travel and sports and culture. And you also write about how people, I can only imagine, everyone must say, oh, you're a writer. You should write a book about your disability. Mm -hmm. How did you partly come around on that? Because you do, you aren't writing a quote unquote disability memoir. You're you're doing something more, and yet you're really allowing us in. Yeah, I mean, I think the variety of things that I wrote about or continue to write about, um, the wide sort of, you know, the the vast sort of topics that I have gotten really obsessive about are partially just because I'm, you know, very curious about the world, but I think also we're sort of dodges um, to avoid looking at or writing about things that would be very painful for me to write about and would make me really vulnerable. So what do you do if you know you should probably probe these vulnerable and painful spaces, but don't want to? Obviously, you become a tennis writer for a year, right? <laughs> you become GP's tennis writer for a year. Like, that's what we do. Um, or you, you know, cover film festivals or you, you know, lose yourself in 18 false starts of dissertation research or you write about, you know, somebody else's life um, mm-hmm. and immerse yourself in, in somebody else's ex- set of experiences. And then you get to be a writer without dealing with any painful things you don't want to deal with, which is really a wonderful thing to do. Um, It's a good avoidance activity. But yeah, I mean, everybody who saw me thought I should be writing about disability, sometimes in a really encouraging way and sometimes in a really reductive way. Um, When I was doing, you know, various degrees, like I would walk into different academic spaces and people would make immediate assumptions that you know, they go, oh, you must only write about identity, you must only do social philosophy, you must only, you know, study, you know, disability or feminist, th- you know, whatever. Um, and I, instead of embracing those things, really rejected them because they felt, they felt, it felt already like the world wanted to reduce me down to one thing that they could see about me. And I didn't want to help that process along. And so I spent the vast majority of my, well, my adulthood and all of my youth just waiting for people to like unsee my disability. So I saw my body as this like heavy barrier between, or this gate between my real self and somebody else. And so the way that I would try to get people to like unsee my disability would be, which you can't do, right? Like I'm very visibly 
immediately recognizably um, disabled, but I would just try to do this like sleight of hand or misdirection and talk about anything else or try to make them laugh or try to engage them in some other topic. And then eventually um, people would say things like, you know, I don't even notice your disability anymore. Isn't that wild? And in my head, I would think, oh yes, that means you're seeing the real me now. Um, And what that turned out to be was, you know, one false, because of course the real me is, is complicatedly linked, complexly linked to my physical self. Yep. And those two things don't exist separately. They exist in a, in a relationship, but also it was, you know, it was a really difficult, problematic act of self erasure. And it took a lot of time for me to sort of figure out why I was doing that and, and how to stop doing that. Yeah. And, and I even see it in terms of you kind of backed away from trying to find a quote unquote community, mm-hmm. because of course, if, if you don't want this thing to define who you are, why would, why would you have so many interests? Why would you join together with people like that? And yet tell me about that. Well, yeah, I, I had this friend and this is a, you know, section in the book that I I'm, I'm running off to do, you know, cover a film festival, a thing I'd never done. I'm running off to interview actors, a thing I'd never done. And I was running off to, you know, learn how to be a sports journalist, which was something I had never done. And this friend said to me, well, you know, I would say like, oh, I'm so stressed and I don't know what I'm doing. And he would say, and he said like, well, you're doing that to yourself. Like you're always putting yourself in a position where you're outside of any community, where you're outside of any realm of expertise. Like, absolutely nobody says that you have to study this new subject or write this new thing, but you are choosing it. And like, why is that? And again, like I said before, one reason is just curiosity, which I think is really the positive side and excitement about newness in the world. And I think that part of me is authentically driving this, you know, varied set of interests, but there's a threshold that where that genuine and, and very positive curiosity, when you cross that threshold is also um, the same, or the other side of that coin is, is an avoidance and uh, a sort of, you know, in, in a way it was like a coping mechanism to always be on the outside of things so that nobody could, as you said, decide I was a thing and then name what that meant. Right. So as soon as you identify as something, people bring all their preconceived notions and ideas of what that thing is. It doesn't it, like even you say I'm a sports writer. Yeah. And you go, people go, oh, my God, sports. Well, it's ruining America. And it's like, OK, OK. You know, or you say you're disabled and they go like, oh, you know, it's like so it doesn't actually matter what that term is. People bring their own good and bad, you know, true and false preconceived notions to that. And I didn't want that. I didn't, and I especially didn't want that with disability because as I was saying, I was still really deeply engaged in this act of self erasure where I thought the only way for people to see the real me is if they forget about my disability. So I'm certainly not going to claim it and like find other people who will understand it. That's the opposite of what I wanted. And my friend said, well, okay, I, under, you know, I, I get what your point is like taking on these terms 
is difficult, but isn't there an obvious trade-off? And I was like, what's the trade-off? And he's like, you're not alone anymore. You're less alone. And, you know, one of the things I figure out in this book and you're smarter than me, so you'll have figured this out long before and probably all of your listeners will have figured out this long before, but there's this amazing thing that happens when you, when you start to try your best to do this self-acceptance, you know, project and you don't try to split your planes of existence between your into yourself and your ex to yourself as if those were wholly disconnected things and you live slightly more authentically this amazing thing happens where when you're talking to a new person that authenticity that you share with them gives them permission to be a little more honest or a little more authentic to you and then you actually connect <laughs> And so that's the thing I wanted so badly. And yet, because of this sort of, you know, bad set of beliefs that I had, I was, I was the thing blocking that I was the thing in my way. Um, And a lot of writing this book has been trying to reorient my own concepts so that I'm no longer that thing in my own way and, and can have the thing I really want, which is to live in the present moment and to be at peace with other people. (laughs) So I'm still working on that, by the way. (laughs) You talk about defense mechanisms though. And I think that's, how could you not have a ton of defense mechanisms when, as you said, like your disability is visible, people have reactions. And not even that, you talk about how um, people who try to be helpful often erase your autonomy. Um, They wanna walk you up the stairs perhaps or lend you an arm and it comes from a decent place and yet it's infantilizing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never think it's a bad idea to offer help to someone, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a nice thing to say, Hey, do you need a hand or can I help you or whatever? The problem is, and this is, I think a very common thing in, in the disabled, um, in the disability community is that when you say, no, thank you. I'm good. People don't listen to your answer. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem begin. Sometimes when I talk about this, people say, what's so wrong with me offering to help an old lady across it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like it's not the offer that's wrong. It's the negating the ability of this person to give you an answer. It's the deep, it's now the, the belief that's rendered tangible that you don't think I'm in control of my life or my body or my choices. And you're showing me that by ignoring what I'm asking you know, or ignoring my answer or what I'm asking of you. And then for me, um, it takes a pretty interesting, it takes an interesting form. So for, I'm, I am not a wheelchair user, but for people who are, one thing I hear a lot is people just kind of grabbing their wheelchair and like pushing them. And you're like, no, 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 this is, you're touching part of my autonomy, part of my agency and you're removing it. And my version of that is, you know, I walk with, um, a very side to side gate, and that can look really precarious to people. And so a lot of times, and it doesn't feel precarious to me because it just feels like my body that I've lived in my whole life, but it looks 
like I'm unstable or it looks like I'm having a really hard time. And so strangers will come and if I'm carrying grocery bags up the subway steps, we'll just take them out of my arms and kind of lug me, you know, up the steps. Or a lot of times we'll grab my arm and and kind of pin it in a way that's really difficult because I use my arms for balance in a way that's not intuitive to other people that don't have my specific disability. So when people kind of pin my arms or grab my arms, they're actually taking away the tools that I need to walk. And I don't under, I don't actually expect anybody to understand that. Mm-hmm. I just expect them to listen when I tell them <laughs> that, you know, like that's it. That's it. Yeah. So I think that that is when that happens. I mean, infantilizing is the right word. Dehumanizing is the right word, but also it just brings into sharp relief that there's a commonly held bad social idea that disability somehow makes me less human, that it makes my life inherently lesser. And that must mean that I can't speak for myself or ask for help myself or articulate my needs. um, And that I should be, I shouldn't be trusted in the same way when I say I'm fine, actually, I'm good. I've got this. It's like, people don't always trust that. And I think that that is a, it's a painful reminder that so many people still have that difficulty seeing me as, you know, a full human. Yeah. And you, so you talk about that you just live in your body. Mm -hmm. How do you find the language to talk about your disability in life and in this book? Because I imagine writing it down um, takes extra special care. Um, Tell me about that. Well, I think it's really, um, I think it was a process that I struggled with throughout the whole book. I mean, the book begins with these two men, you know, I'm sitting at a bar in Brooklyn with two men that are my friends and they say, you know, they're arguing about whether or not my life is worth living and I'm sitting between them. And I realize this thing is happening, which is I'm retreating into the space in my mind that I call the neutral room, which is a sort of dissociative space that I learned um, as a technique for managing pain when I was really little. And this thing happens that had never happened before, which is that I realize that I'm dissociating so much from the sort of social discomfort of these two men having this conversation that I've completely absented myself from the opportunity to explain to them why they're wrong. And I look at that moment and I think like, okay, one, I didn't even realize that I dissociate so much. Although my husband could have told me, and my husband tells me this all the time. And I'm like, you don't know, but he did know he could see, he's like, I'm constantly doing this. And so I look at that, but then I also realize that I don't, even if I'm not, even if I make myself more present in this conversation with these men, I don't have the language to defend my existence. I don't have the language to talk about my body because I never did it. But beyond that, not only was I not talking to people about disability, and I mean, no one, not my husband, not my son, not my friends, and as little as possible with my own mother. Um, But I also wasn't studying it. I wasn't reading other disabled writers. 
I wasn't reading about disability history. I wasn't learning about the history of eugenics and not other countries, but in the United States, I wasn't learning about the rights that I enjoy because of the ADA and the activists that have fought for it. I had really turned my back on anything that could resemble an intellectual community, let alone an actual human community. And because my disability isn't hereditary, it wasn't like my mother could pass down a tradition to me either. So I didn't grow up in a household with any disabled people. I didn't, I grew up in a really small town and there weren't really a lot of other disabled people even in my entire school. So I could very easily disconnect myself really easily disconnect myself from anything that resembled a critical language, an emotional language, a personal language around describing who I was in relation to this concept of disability. Um, So, and I had motivation to do that too, right? Because the sort of social feedback is, is so, so profoundly damaging and negative. So the process of writing this book was also confronting that and feeling a certain amount of shame and embarrassment that I had internalized bad ableist beliefs so deeply that I had turned myself away from from understanding my own place in the world. And so this book was really about trying to acquire that language and I'm still, I'm still trying to acquire it. But one of, you know, of course, one of the first steps was just reading as much as I could, learning mm-hmm. as much as I could, following a lot of disabled people on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram. So visually immersing myself in the visual representations of other disabled people, reaching out to a community, but then of course, just talking about it, beginning to talk about it to my friends, you know, to my husband, to my son and struggling with that. And this book is, I wanted to write a book in which 100% of the book is situated in my struggle. And the second that I start to get a little bit of self-awareness and start to make a turn, I stop the book. That's it. It's like, that's the end. It's like this, that turn, because all, a lot of the things I read were often written by people who had sort of self-actualized so fully And they're writing about themselves with the hindsight of this awareness and they're beautiful books and they're great models, but I didn't find a lot of models of people learning how to get there. Going through it. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't have a parent that helps you with it, you don't have a sister that helps you with it. You don't have a culture that shows you where disability is, you know, saturated with value. Like putting disabled bodies on magazines or in commercials or in films and television and giving them a rich life, an interior life, a sexual life, a life of agency. Like if you don't see those things, it's hard to know where to even start that project. So I wanted to write something that was like, yeah, this person knows nothing and they're going to struggle for 288 pages Hopefully some of it's funny, it's not going to be, some of it's going to be, you're going to be annoyed with me, but I don't know. I wrote the book I think would have helped me a little bit. I love that. I, I, I do feel like you have sections of the book that I, in my head, I call conversations with men in bars. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know I got to stop having conversations with men in bars. That's the real <laughs> takeaway. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer to everything. Don't talk to men in bars. Never go, <laughs> no, go ahead. Um, tell me about, you know, you said there, you, no, let's go here. One of the most beautiful things you say about your husband is that he pulled my mind inside my body and made me live inside it. Mm-hmm. That sounds excruciating and wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy, Andrew. Um, he was the first person I dated who. Okay. Well, let me say this. I used to date men who I, because I only thought the thing of value that I had was my mind. That's the only piece of value I thought I possessed for a long time. I only dated men who engaged me verbally or who engaged me intellectually. And I thought that the thing I was really looking for was someone to spar with, you know, tell, you know, and drink a lot of wine and sit in bars and, and, and argue about books and ideas. And those things are great. And some of these men were amazing, but um, I really prioritized that sort of connection. And my husband is a man of very few words. He is quite, you know, Midwestern, laconic, sort of, he's a little bit like a, he's also very Zen. He's very like at peace and very present and extremely logical. He's like a, he's like a Zen monk. If monks like played a lot of video games and (laughs) fucked, you know, like that's sort of like his vibe. Um, So we couldn't, we didn't spend our lives connecting constantly verbally. Of course, that's a huge part of our relationship, but it wasn't the prioritized part of the way that he showed his love to me. The way that he shows his love is through constant daily actions of care uh, and constant daily actions of of physicality. And I just mean like, if I'm doing the dishes, he's going to come up behind me and rub my shoulders or give me a hug or kiss my forehead. He always wants to hold my hand. If we're watching TV together, we're going to be, you know, holding each other and, and having a really deep physical connection that transcends sex, although sex is a huge part of it, but is about like being in a body that's connecting with another body. That's his love language. And that was really new for me and really scary because in order to really meet him in that love connection, I had to be in my body. I had to feel that way that bodies can communicate to each other and communicate care to each other. Um, And that was something I had really kept separate because my body gave me so much and continues to give me so much pain that I often wanted to pretend it didn't exist. And I would date men who would allow me to continue that to pretend because we would only, only talk and spar and that's how our, you know, bond would grow. So to be with someone who just forces me into my body in order to truly communicate with him. Yeah. I think, I mean, you said it best. It's like so lovely, but also um, it was quite hard because it, required confronting things I didn't necessarily want to confront all the time. Tell me 
just a little bit about the idea of a quest and what you find attractive about that idea and what your father did and what perhaps some of our great thinkers did. I, I used scare quotes there, but I think I would, <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, well, I think throughout this whole book, I'm looking at things that, and I've already said this, you know, just a few minutes ago, like I keep looking at things in which on one hand, they're really great. And then if you look, you can always locate like a threshold into where they sort of tip into being um, possibly avoidance or, or some other sort of problematic thing. So with the quest, I mean, the beautiful thing about the quest and this is this was true of my father. It's true of a lot of great philosophers. And I, I think in, in this book is something I'm also trying to take on is that the search for truth or the search for newness or the search to find something outside of yourself or outside of your home or outside of what you know, like these are essential narratives. They're the old, I mean, quest narratives are probably the oldest narrative that exists and they exist in every culture. And Joseph Campbell writes, you know, you know, wrote all these great books about this quest and it's like what it means in the human sort of necessary mental and physical development cycle to come outside of yourself and outside of the home and outside of the familiar and into the unknown and strange world to discover the thing you need to discover. And that is a, on one hand, a really good, important, necessary human thing to do that necessitates, or that is, you know, that growth necessitates. However, the other side of the threshold is that restlessness or being on a restless quest or having this desire to constantly find newness can make it be very hard um, to be content with what you have and can also, if you're, if you're wanting to avoid looking at like the hard realities of your actual lived life, um, then you can avoid those realities by embarking on a quest or like seeking out the life of the mind or seeking out all this newness. So my father was someone who lived a lot of his life in a really romanticized, idealized space. He was always, you know, he describes himself in a letter to me, and I say this in the book, as having a motorcycle personality in that he was steady when he was on the move and he was unstable when he was idling. And that instability at, at quote unquote idling meant that he had a really hard time just like being happy in a relationship, being happy or present as a father, being happy or stable in a job. Uh, he really couldn't even handle going to the grocery store. Like he couldn't have like, like any of the just boring detritus of life. Like it really offended his soul on a deep level. And I share this. Mm -hmm. He says in this letter to me, he said, you and I have the same curse and he's absolutely right. Like I can't, I feel so offended by having to like go to the DMV, you know, and or like make dinner on a Tuesday. Like sometimes I'll just look at dinner I'm making on a Tuesday and I'll just have these grandiose romantic thoughts that are like, my mind was not made for chicken cacciatore again, you know, like <laughs> something great and new. And, um, 
and those sides of my father and myself are quite narcissistic and they can be really harmful to the people who rely on your daily commitment and they rely on you doing boring tasks with them or for them, or they rely on your chicken cacciatore on Tuesday so that they can not, you know, and my mother, on the other hand, was someone who extremely bravely always faced the reality of life. And she was someone who could integrate the hard facts of our lives into her sense of self. So she could see the Tuesday night dinner as an opportunity to be an artist, to be creative, to make a brand new meal. She could look at the clothes that I needed as an opportunity to make, you know, learn how to sew or make something new. She would paint everything in our house and she would paint my bookshelves. She would paint like little rabbits on all my bookshelves when I was a kid and, um, and carved a headboard for my bed. And, and so she could be an artist in the way my dad wished he could be, but she wanted our, she wanted the hard facts of reality and beauty to be braided together rather than seen as essentially in opposition to each other, which of course they're not. So throughout this book, I have my father in me, I have my mother in me, I have their influences that live and sort of battle in me. And I try very hard to figure out if it's possible to make peace, not to do away with sure either, but to have them coexist and, and be at peace so that I, I can be present. And, and also, so I don't make the same mistakes as a parent that my father did, you know? So. And, and one of the threads that really feels like the primary motivation for, for your book is you want, you want to set an example for your son Mm-hmm. or you don't want him to inherit the rightfully jaded, <laughs> untrusting parts of you. How do you even, how do you go about conceptualizing that that's the problem? And then how do you go about trying? Yeah, well, well, figuring that problem or figuring out that we had that problem, that I had that problem was pretty easy because, um, well, so, you know, I, I got pregnant and I had a baby and I thought, I think maybe a lot of parents think this, or maybe again, and it's just like, everyone knows this and I am behind, but I just sort of had this thought where I was like, oh, I can hide all the worst parts of myself from my child. And I'll just be like parent Chloe with him. And then real Chloe will, you know, hide in the darkness or something and that you could separate those two things. And the truth is, is like, you can get away with that for a lot, for a like couple of years at least because they're babies and they just sleep and they don't absorb the worst parts of you. And then when my son was about four or five, he became really hyperverbal and um, he didn't talk for a long time. And then all of a sudden was like giving speeches and so at about four and five, we were just always talking and he was always talking and he was so curious. And that's a really interesting stage of like childhood development. And the thing that became very stark and clear to me is that that's a, 
that's an age in which your children are just little mirrors. They're absorbing your every mood. They're absorbing your every, you know, the tone. Like I could, my eyebrow would twitch and he would be like, what's going on? What's wrong? What are you mad about? And I'd be like, nothing. And he's like, I know you're mad. Like, and he was so sensitive and so perceptive. And I also just could see him mirroring, mirroring all my worst behaviors. So my distrust of strangers, my feeling that people would be cruel before I even allowed them to say a single word to me or, or to be people like my own ability to dehumanize others or be reductive to others because of assumptions that I was making about who they would be to me. And also at four and five, your kids start school for the first time. So in the midst of seeing all this reflected back to me, I was also sending him off to a world of strangers and asking those strangers to educate him and asking him to trust them to educate him and asking him to listen to his teachers or his peers and be open to them. And yet I couldn't model it. And so he wasn't doing it. And I thought, okay. And and you just said this, like, maybe I have reason to feel that way to a certain extent. I don't have reason or excuse to dehumanize or be reductive um, or be ungenerous. Even I actually don't have that excuse, but I do have experiences that have caused me discomfort and pain. And, and that's all right. That's all well and good. And maybe being sort of cynical and isolated is a life that's worthy of me, but it's definitely not a life that's worthy of my son. And the problem is, is you can't just say that to your kids. Which is, <laughs> you have to actually do it. You have to do it. And that's what's <laughs> so like maddening to me about being a parent is that like, there's just no way out of your own bullshit. Like you just have to deal with it. Cause I'd be like, come on, listen to your teachers. Like it's okay. Like you're going to be fine. And he'd be like, no mom, come on. We don't do that. And he'd always like put us on a team together, which I also loved. But then I was like, no, don't, ah, God damn. You know? And then, so I knew, you know, this book starts with me recognizing that I have to change something about myself, both because I want to have a language, you know, in this situation, with my friends at the bar, I want to have the language to defend the existence the worthiness of my existence, but also I desperately want to model the right things for my son so that I set him up to be present and to be open and to be generous and critical and thoughtful and cautious, but not so critical or cautious that it excludes the possibility of like fellowship and community and excitement about living in a world of others Um, and that, that felt very urgent to me. So that now how one does that is a different question, but that was certainly the goal, the hope. I'll, I'll leave people to read the book to get to (laughs) some of the, um, some things you try, but before I ask you for book recommendations, I do, I need to know when you covered Roger Federer, mm-hmm. you ran into Jeff Dyer. I did. And so now he has this book 
at, coming out next month about yeah. Roger Federer. I am looking at the galley of it right now. Yeah. I'm glad you have it. I do have it. Yeah. Can you please, <laughs> I don't know, write about it or uh, it's. I would love to get, it was so, I mean, I, I think Jeff Dyer and I should just go on the road talking about Roger Federer or something, which is something he would probably do. Yeah. So that it was the weirdest thing. It was honestly one of the strangest moments of my life. And I really thought like, maybe I'm a witch, maybe I can manifest whatever's in my brain. Cause I was covering tennis and I was watching, you know, Roger Federer play with great rapt attention, but I was also feeling like a great imposter because I was working as a sports journalist for the first time. It's a very intimidating place to be in a sports writing room. And a lot of the people I was surrounded by were pros at the highest level, had been writing about tennis or writing about sports for decades and were so skilled and so knowledgeable and so competent. And I was like, wow, I'm really out of place here and quite anxious, but I had brought Jeff Dyer's white sands with me. And I was reading that. And I think I also had yoga for people who don't want to do it, that book. And I was reading those books and in his books, he's like, just like walking around the world being like, I don't know, like what's going to happen here. I'm going to mess up and this is going to be bad, but maybe it'll be hilarious. And you know, I'm going to go to this place and like, oh, our boat sank, but like, oh, it's okay. Or like, you know, met this woman and kind of gave her the eyes. And then like, we had a special connection and then who knows what, you know, it's like, he's always just, there's like one of his essays where he's sent to write about Gauguin. Maybe I might be misremembering it. And he brings like one book to do all the research. It's like a huge book about Gauguin. And then he like leaves it in an airport and he's like, well, I don't know. We're going to see what we can do, but he still writes the essay. And I was, I was, and he's so funny and completely unafraid of following, you know, following his own desires into disaster or success, whatever comes. And I thought maybe I can just try on Jeff Dyer as an identity while I'm at this tennis garden writing. I'm just going to pretend that I am Jeff Dyer. And that everyone is that's looking at me sees me as if I am Jeff Dyer. And I'm going to do this like big cognitive dissociative exercise in order to kind of like imbue myself with, with confidence and, and a sense of humor and a willingness to fail and seeing it all as productive. And, and also of course, to take on, you know, a bit of the privilege that he has when he puts his body into new spaces, I was like, I'll just pretend I have all that. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that for days and it was really working. I kind of highly recommend everybody pretend to be Jeff Dyer. And then I was in a press conference and I was looking around and I was like, huh, this guy looks like Jeff Dyer, but you know, that's not possible. And then I kind of follow this man out of the press conference and I won't ruin the rest of it, except for to say it was Jeff Dyer. He was there because of course he's a tennis fan. He loves Roger Federer. And, um, and it was, I, it really, I really felt like I was like piercing reality when, when I saw him, because I had been thinking about him so much. And then he literally materialized in front of me and we, we had a great time. We're still friends. He read the book and we've talked about the book quite a bit and his wife read the book. And now I've got his book, which I haven't read yet, but it's at the very top of my list. So yeah, that was this very strange and fortuitous moment that made it in the book. <laughs> I love, I mean, 
what great advice to end on. <laughs> just envision a world in which you're Jeff Dyer for just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The next time you're feeling out of place, pretend you're Jeff Dyer and it's going to be a hysterical essay later. I love that. Um, Chloe, before we go, please recommend some books for us. Okay. Well, I know you just had Julia Mae Jonas on. I loved Vladimir. Um, I loved Jasmine Chan's School for Good Mothers. Those are recent books that came out. Um, There's a book that came out in the UK first, but it's coming out really soon in the US called The Coward by Jared McGinnis. And I'm going to do an event with him on April 14th, I think. It's a fantastic novel that's won some awards in the UK. And yeah, I just, I love it. Um, I think I've got a shout out, uh, our friend, Isaac Fitzgerald, who's got a book coming out, not for a while, but, um, but I'm excited soon enough. Yeah. Soon enough. So, you know, I wanted, you know, things to look forward to things that are out right now. And then also, you know, older book, but you know, a lot of my book is a, is travel writing. We've already talked plenty about Jeff Dyer, but, um, I think two really valuable books for me that shaped, the way that I could write mine were Gretel Ehrlich's The Solace of Open Spaces. The way that she approaches the idea of travel writing is extremely instructive to me. And then another book, which I wouldn't necessarily call travel writing, but I feel like such a deep kinship to, oh, I can't even say that because I just have learned a lot from it. I don't think she would feel a kinship to me. I have learned so much from her in her book, but is Helen McDonald's H is for Hawk. Um, And the sort of bravery of that book to just sort of, I feel like she just lays her mind quite bare and allows herself a lot of permission to make connections that other people wouldn't make or that other people wouldn't even know why you were making them. And that book is about like literary theory and grief and training hawks and it's like she puts them all together in this way and then every sentence I think is is stunning and so I read when I was working on my book I read her book probably like three or four times all the way through or I would just come back to certain chapters I always felt instructed by it so those are a few oldies and new ones and you gave on the horizon you gave us everything Chloe, thank you so much. Easy beauty. You're going to want to read this. Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.